Welcome to the public rally. In the second installment of interviews about my forthcoming book, The Radical Declaration, An Enlightened American Idea, the Reverend Terrence Hawkins is today's guest host, and his focus is the Radical Declaration of Independence seen through the lens of marginalization. Reverend Hawkins is the founding member of Drum Major Alliance, located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Byron Williams, welcome to the public morality. Brother Terrence, really good to be with you, my friend. Really good to be with you. Always a pleasure. Um, so today we're going to be discussing your new book, The Radical Declaration, an Enlightened American Idea. And specifically, we'll be dialoguing about chapter three of the book, uh, which you've entitled The Idea Through the Lens of Marginalization. Um, and for me, as someone rooted in and appreciative of traditions that teach us to read history from the margins um, and not the seat of power, I was really intrigued by the title of the chapter itself. So could you like start us off with a dis what you mean by um, the idea through the lens of marginalization? Okay. Well, the first part is the idea. And, and the idea right. stems from the Declaration of Independence, which was essentially an idea that says we're going to create a country not based on uh, homogenization or religious affiliation, any of the kind of distinctive uh, uh, measurements, but we're going to create a country based on an idea. And that idea uh, on paper is liberty and equality. Mm -hmm. So so the title then, how does one look at this idea through this lens of marginalization? And, 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 and how I define the legend, lens of marginalization is anyone who, for whatever reason, has been placed outside of the dominant culture, outside uh, of the status quo. How, mm -hmm. how does this promise, this committed, um, stated commitment to liberty equality look to you? Um, mm -hmm. So how does it look through women um, who have uh, uh, gone through, you know, a long history of misogyny? Obviously, how does it look about people of color, African-Americans in particular, who have gone through a long legacy, an ongoing legacy of, of racism? How does it look to LGBT brothers and sisters? Anybody who has been on the outside, who's been deemed other at some point in American narrative has had to look at this idea through the lens of marginalization. Yeah, that's good. Um, as you talked, I was reminded of that African proverb that says, until um, the lion gets to tell her part of the story, history will always glorify the hunter. Um, exactly. And I, I think, yeah, I think that's such an important orientation um, when engaging with history um, or anything for that matter. And you, as you flesh this idea out, it seems to me that on, in one sense, you're saying um, that this perspective of the marginalized can be very generative. But excuse me if I'm overstating this, you also seem to indicate that it could also be destructive. I'm probably overstating that, but you seem to be wrestling with these two ideas as both gener generative and destructive. Well, I think Could you I th talk a little bit more yeah, about that. Well, actually, uh, that's a great question. I, I think it's both. I'm, you know, I, I think that uh, you would agree with me that these narratives are complicated, 
And mm-hmm. and too often we talk about them in a binary sense. So this lens of marginalization can be both. Um, you, you know, and we'll talk about this later, but without the lens of marginalization, you know, look at most of the change in this country. The change in this country, when it's gotten closer to those stated precepts, did so because there was a group of folk who, who were looking through this lens of marginalization who pushed the country to be better. The, mm-hmm. there, there, there ultimately are no reconstruction, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, without this lens. There's not women's suffrage without this lens. There's not a civil rights movement without this lens. There, there, right. there, there's not um, marriage equality without this lens. There, there wasn't a really overwhelming uh, support to change the narrative in the Vietnam War without this lens. So this lens historically has been critical to the American narrative to make it better. Now, mm-hmm. where, where I, I do raise a cautionary note is when the lens blinds us to possibility. There, 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 okay. there, there can be a point to where I look through this lens and I'm less concerned about change, but I have adopted this lens that gives me a platform and that in and of itself becomes my raison d'etre, if you will. So I'm less concerned about change as I am about having my own platform. And to me, that's where the lens uh, is destructive. But overall, though, I would say America has been made better by those courageous foot soldiers who are willing to look through this lens of marginalization to do what America originally could not get done. Mm. Mm. So... Connected to that, you um, frame things up towards the end of the chapter, I believe, um, with this idea of the who versus the what. Mm-hmm. Um, and the who being the writers and then the what being the content of the declaration itself. And while I 100% agree that there can be a differentiation made, um, I'm wondering what you would say to those of us who might um, suggest that the declaration itself is infected with the very thing that those who view it from the side of marginalization were pushing against. For instance, like the Declaration of Independence calls um, indigenous people, Native Americans, merciless savages, and it calls um, enslaved black folks who are seeking their freedom, domestic insurrectionists. So what, what would you say um, on that um, that question, you know, those that would suggest that it's inherently um, anti-black, anti-indigenous. Right. It, it, it is, um, I would agree with that and I, um, to the extent that it is inherently those things if we tie the idea, the ideals, and the artisans into one neat little box. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you take Thomas Jefferson, for example, complicated life, principal author of the of the Declaration of Independence. You know, not the sole author, but the principal author. Jefferson's life is very complicated, well documented with the piece, with the, his history about slavery and and Sally Hemings. Um, but what I would say though is that they committed to liberty and equality. 
Now, mm-hmm. now how now the implementation of that, uh, I think you and I would totally agree, has left a lot to be desired. But mm-hmm. they committed to those things. And mm-hmm. what I would say, and let's take the current, let, you know, for lack of a better word, let's just, let's just take the current movement, Black Lives Matter. Okay. You know, the, the artisans of the Declaration of Independence said, we have a problem. Black Lives Matter says, we have a problem. The, the artisans of the Declaration say, here's how we think this problem ought to be addressed. Black Lives Matter says, here's how we think this problem ought to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And this is, all, this is all in the first, second paragraph. And then the declaration says, in addition to those two things, we believe we are morally justified to pursue this problem in this manner. Now, mm-hmm. I would ask you, does not Black Lives Matter say the exact same thing? So they, so they are children of the ideal of the declaration. So that's why I'm less concerned about what the intent was of any individual as I am what the document says. And so mm-hmm. whenever you look at, again, movements across, you know, the American landscape, when, they, when those movements have been successful, it's gotten the nation closer in those myriad ways, whether you adopt the actual language of the declaration, you are participating in the ideal of the declaration, and you are just as consistent, just as American, just as profound as mm-hmm. as the powdered wig brothers who met in Philadelphia and came up with the document. Mm-hmm. So you, I'm going to quote you. Um, oh, Lord. You say, what me? <laughs> what me? Um, <laughs> You say that um, the Declaration may demand a form of radicalism greater than the artisans of the idea, um, but it's consistent with the ideals of the Declaration. That's sort of what you were just mm-hmm. describing there. I-, I wonder if you could um, go a little deeper into this idea of a greater radicalism. Where do we see these radicalisms um, emerge, and and where would you see some some breaks, um, if you will, uh, with the trajectory of the declaration itself. Well, so, okay. go ahead. No, let's start with the second one per- first. There's all types of bricks. I mean, the, the, the irony is, and, and, and the paradox, which is important to what I talk about, the paradox is from the moment that the document was written, there were bricks. Mm-hmm. You know, Jefferson had this stinging critique of, slave, of the slave trade in the Declaration and and the Continental Congress, no, we got to take that out. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, no, no, we got to take that out. Uh, and then you see another break in 1787 when the Constitution is created, and you would not have a country, North and South, if you did not have the Three Fifths Compromise. So that so that for portions of reapportionment. For purposes of reinforcement, excuse me, uh, blacks, black males, the women weren't even counted, black males slaves were counted as three-fifths three of a person for census purposes. So mm-hmm. that right there places uh, the country in tension with itself. 
here's what we said we agreed on, here's what we're doing. So it was mm -hmm. a compromise with evil that put the country in tension with itself. And everything that plays out subsequently, that sort of hovers over. You can't, you can't get around that until, until 1865 when 650,000 people are killed, Americans, North and South, 2% of the population, and then three uh, Reconstruction Amendments are, are put into the Constitution, and the 14th Amendment then expressly puts equality, which is the ethos of the Declaration, into the Constitution. So, so, and we keep having these breaks. So, you know, th so there's breaks all along, and that's sort of right. hardwired into the American narrative, these breaks. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. The radicalism comes in when you've had people audaciously raising the question from uh, quoting the Constitution, we the people, and then you have, well, who exactly are the we? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, because America paradoxically takes the most inclusive language in the American lexicon, we, and then puts a lot of asterisks around it. And so, right. <laughs> and, and so it takes a, a, an audaciousness and a radicalism to go, wait a minute, I don't care what your intent was, you said we. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you see it with, say, abolitionists like Angelina Grimke and, and, and Abigail Adams, even before they could vote having the franchise, well, asking that question. You, you see Frederick Douglass asking that question, you know, questioning the relevance of a document that talks about liberty and equality. I'm talking about the Declaration of Independence, but in practice is subjective liberty and inequality. Mm -hmm. and, and, and let me just put a little a sub subversive footnote right there. One <laughs> of the fascinating things about the Declaration of Independence, though it never states it, the implied intent written in visible ink was it was a document written for white male landowners. So right. the overwhelming majority of Americans living today were not included in the original document. The yes. original intent of, of the founders disenfranchised, depending on the statistics, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of the white male population. So. Right. All, all women are, are disenfranchised, all people of color are disenfranchised, and then 30 to 50 percent of white males are disenfranchised. So the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the document originates with just a small slice of a subset, you, yeah. know, you know, and that was and so then the radicalism is that people keep coming along like, wait a minute, I know what you said. Here's what you did. And mm -hmm. for my money. No one did that better than the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who mm -hmm. holds up the mirror of moral self-reflection for the for for the country to gaze. And 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 there's a lot of places that we could footnote here, but my favorite still is King's last speech when he's in Memphis, right the night before he's assassinated, he says, all we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. On paper. You know, right, somewhere right, right. I read a freedom of <laughs> right, speech. Right. Somewhere I read. And so there's King saying, you know, I don't care what your intent was. Mm -hmm. I, I don't care what you may have envisioned. I don't care if this document that you wrote supersedes what you imagined. Here's what mm -hmm. you said. 
and I'm holding you to what you said and you sign your name to it and I'm holding you accountable to that. And I think yeah. that that's where I want to push folk into the conversation. You know, mm-hmm. I, I agree with everybody who, who, who criticizes Jefferson and other founders for owning slaves. I'm not trying to be an apologist for that. But mm-hmm. they wrote this. <laughs> this is what yes. they wrote. And think of I'll end on this. Think of it this way. Terrence, if, if you're on the ground and I got my knee firmly on your neck, no pun intended, and you tell me it hurts, you say, Byron, your your knee hurts. If what if I say to you, Well, Terrence, I'm not trying to hurt you. Do you care about my intent? Or do you right. <laughs> or do you care about my mm-hmm. action? And that's right. how we should look at the Declaration of Independence. Okay. So um, connected to that, um, you talked about how King, you know, so eloquently in his last speech said, speech said, you know, be true to what you said on paper and how you can trace King's what I call um, expression of the black radical church tradition all the way back to um, the antebellum South with these illegal uh, worship gatherings that took place under the cover of the night. Uh, which some call the hush harbors or brush arbors. Mm -hmm. But in essence, you had the sanctioned worship gatherings on plantations that um, preached the gospel and portrayed a God who, you know, designed folks um, of African descent to be subservient. But under the cover of night, they did something different um, with that gospel. And they, you know, wedded some of their African spiritualities uh, with it and did something pretty incredible. And you speak of the Hush Harbors in this chapter. Um, and I'm wondering, so I, I've been wrestling with this thought. You know, oftentimes when we talk about um, the attempt, the, these radicalisms that attempt to call into question the practice of America and um, push it towards something that's closer to what's on paper. And all of that gets kind of sucked up into the vacuum of American exceptionalism in a certain kind of way. I think what I'm what I'm trying to say, if I can say it a little bit more succinctly, is that sometimes in our uh, in our work to show what has been done to push the country forward, it seems as though we erase the agency of indigenous people, of African people, mm-hmm. and it and it feels like their genius in some ways gets lost in the sauce of the genius of the document. And I'm wondering if there's a way to talk about the hush harbors or the black radical tradition um, in ways that are almost like soul food. The phenomenon of soul food is is a product of the fact that enslaved people didn't have access to a whole bunch of food. But they use the raw materials that they had with their own genius to create something great. And I'm, I wonder how we can push the conversation that gives back the agency to black people, indigenous people, women, um, to say that, yes, they are pulling from the raw material of what's around them, but their freedom dreams were in them pre their journey across the shore um, and in many ways are grander than even what they've pulled off in terms of pushing that document towards something closer to justice. Well, Does that make any sense? Well, let me, let, let's, let's, let's see if we can pull something out of that. See if I can pull a rabbit out of my hat. But <laughs> I, I, I think when, when, when you were framing the question, what comes to mind, I think as a standalone, 
We're not talking about implementation. We're just talking about the words on the paper. The Declaration of Independence is the greatest document committed to human agency. All right? The problem is, the problem is it has gotten subsumed. The agency has gotten subsumed under assimilation. So, so what the words on the paper was not, it, it's not an assimilationist document. It is, it is words that value agency and, and, and one of the byproducts of agency is pluralism. So, so, so that means I'm not, you know, like my own projects here, this, the, in this book project, I'm not attempting to embrace the Declaration of Independence the way the assimilist model over the last couple hundred years say you are to embrace it. Because mm-hmm. that model has uh, morphed into hot dogs, fireworks, a ball, <laughs> and a ball game, and a picnic. That, that, that doesn't mean, that means, that means nothing to me. That, that, that doesn't work for me. I have no I have no offense to anyone who engages in that, but I but 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 the document is irrelevant if that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But 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 I want to do as you suggest, and if you value the agency that the document created, then you've got then then you have to understand that America was was the byproduct, not the intent, but the byproduct of America was to create a country based on an idea that had to always live with a little tension to move forward. Um, America, the way it is constructed on this radical idea, can never be a country void of some tension. Because if you say we are connected, and we are formed on liberty and equality. When you start with inequality, you know, uh, when, when you start by annihilating one group of people and enslaving another, if, you, if you're going to meet those goals of liberty and equality, you got to have some tension every now and then. You have to. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's Miles Davis and John Coltrane. Got to be a little tension there to create some genius. So, yes. So, again, America was designed probably against maybe the, the will of the founders to embed it in some tension. So in order to, for, for, for black folk to find agency, you have to push up against the status quo to, to move all of the, 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 the nonsense to get to the document. You mentioned, you know, the Bush Harbor experience. You, you know, there's, there's a concept that actually comes after uh, the Bush Harbor experience. But what the slaves did is called the hermeneutics of suspicion. Right. And, right. and, and so, you know, they would have they, the forced worship service. The, the white, you know, preacher would say, be good to your master slave, be good to your masters, and you'll get your reward later. And slaves are like, well, wait a minute. We got some questions about that kind of theological approach. Mm-hmm. We're not sure. That the that, that that this guy you're talking about wants us to be slaves, mm-hmm. and so that's why they ha- they want to have a do over, and so the black church originates under white Christianity, put through the lens of African worship traditions that ha- had been forbidden mm-hmm. by the dominant culture. That is yeah. what the black church is: call and response. Right, right. You know, mm-hmm. a participatory worship. Being connected to a God of liberation. 
mm-hmm. that, that, that's what the black church originally was. And, Absolutely. And so, <laughs> and so it's that kind. So to get finally to get, I get to, the, the, to put a pin on this is that when you're looking through the lens of marginalization, you've got to fight through all of the uh, pillars put up uh, or the roadblocks put up by the status quo to get to this document that ultimately talks about human agency. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that response. Um, there, I'm going to read another quote from um, this chapter. And I, I love this section. And I, it's very, very relevant for um, this moment where folks are using an intersectional lens um, or analytic tool to understand oppressions. Um, you say, but in a macro context, there is a commonality of struggle and dehumanization. Are we to take slender solace by engaging in, I love this, oppression poker. <laughs> I see your Jim Crow and I'll raise you Japanese internment camps. I see your Japanese internment camps and I'll raise you Trail of Tears. Are not these episodes as well as others reflective of dark chapters chapters in America's history? Uh, what does it matter if the dark corner that one stands appears slightly brighter to others when all inhabit the same suffocating domicile of bigotry? Love that quote. The question I want to pose to you is, with that being said, um, you know, you're pushing against this idea of, you know, oppression poker. What does it look like for folks who have different experiences of oppression to see a commonality and again, embracing embrace this greater radicalism that you point us to um, without erasing like the fact that there are unique um, um, sufferings that certain groups have have endured, right? And I, and I and I I don't think any of those sufferings need to be minimized. I don't think, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think what I'm saying is to minimize, you know, my unique suffering or your unique suffering or her unique suffering. That that, that that's not it at all. But it sort of gets mm-hmm. back. It gets back to agency, and, it, and it, it, well, it gets back to agency. You talked about in the last question, and what you talked about um, earlier. If, if we, that's the harmful side of that lens of marginalization. That if I come into it, well, I can't. I can't be an ally to you, Jewish brother, because you lost six million and I lost untold tens of millions during the middle of passage. Ergo, I can't be an ally to you on this issue to you acknowledge this. And to me, that is the shortcoming. I mean, I mean, that's the shortcoming that, that I'm talking about. You know, if it's authentic. It can't be a one-way street, but it's got to be authentic. Mm-hmm. I've got to see the suffering of the Holocaust. I've got to see the suffering of the Trail of Tears. You know, I've got to see that it is inherently wrong for 27 states to be able to fire a gay or lesbian brothers and sister just because they're gay or lesbian. You know, right. thank, thank God the Supreme Court changed that the other day. But, right. but, but you know, I, I just cannot have this... Um, moral cataracts that only sees mm-hmm. my suffering. I, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, because the thing is, th- this is, this is what connects us. You know, I'm going to go back to King again. 
uh, if you um, you know you're 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 one of the founding members of the Drum Major Alliance, then you'll appreciate this comes from the Drum Major Instinct when King was right. talking about being in jail in Birmingham and talking to the jailers, and they were talking about why why civil rights was so wrong and segregation was so right, and, and then mm-hmm. Martin says about the third day. We got around to what them brothers were earning. And when they told me how much they were earning, I said, you know what? You ought to be marching with us. Right. And right. see, and see, that's what I'm talking about. So as King goes on to say, his limited cataracts of the social construct of whiteness al- allowed him the privilege to be blind to any type of suffering. And he had more in common with the folk who were in jail protesting mm-hmm. for rights than the status quo who for whom he was doing their bidding. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what I love about um, our tradition, if I could say that. Um, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer famously said, nobody's free till everybody's free. And in the face of all of the unique sufferings that um, black folks have have um, undergone at our best we always maintain this sense of compassion and um, this idea of like solidarity across these lines like out there there's a movement in this movement for black lives moment there's like a sub movement called the ados movement um, and i think ados stands for american descendants of slaves um, or of slavery And what they're attempting to zoom in on is the fact that black folks who are descendants of enslaved people have a unique experience compared to, let's say, a Nigerian immigrant who just moved here in 1985. I understand that, but there's almost this wall that's created through the way they go about this. That's a betrayal of the best of what we've done um, in in the black radical tradition or have you want a black freedom struggle. Um, and so I really appreciate your comments there. Um, something you, you wrote about Juneteenth and how there's, you know, contested dates of independence and freedom mm-hmm. um, that are celebrated uh, in the United States. And, and what does all that mean? Does it mean we have to shove everything into one um, date or can there be separate dates? And how do we acknowledge that nuance and hold space for all of that? And I'm reminded this, I guess this past week, our president um, basically said that he made Juneteenth famous. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it. But in a, in a real sense, how, how do we, how do we as a um, diverse community make famous um, histories or make well-known histories that are often pushed to the margins. Like, how, how do we engage in that work? Because it seems so important to to what you're calling for um, oh, I, in our engagement of this declaration. Oh, I, I think I think it's absolutely critical. Um, I, I think it is it is it is probably one of the foundational underpinnings of why America uh, suffers from Arrested Development because. Black History Month, Women's History Month, Hispanic History Month, LGBT History Month. It's all American history. And so the great, if you want to be a great nation, a great nation, you know, somebody say you build the atomic bomb or you defeat Hitler or, or you go to the moon. 
I say a great nation, one of the first things a great nation must be able to do is to embrace its high and low moments. Equally. Mm. You can't be a great nation if you're not willing to do that. And see, the problem that America struggles with is that when you talk about these various histories, African-American history, women's history, gay and lesbian history, Hispanic and so on and so forth, when you talk about these histories, there is an unflattering narrative associated with the dominant culture that America doesn't have the maturity to embrace. I mean, were it not for the advancements of DNA testing, there would still be a debate whether or not those kids belong to Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because it's, it's unflattering to the dominant culture that Thomas Jefferson's longest intimate relationship was with mm -hmm. a black woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so again, right or wrong, I'm not taking a position on it. So, so we don't, we got to have the maturity and to talk about a low moment doesn't mean you hate America. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you're beating America up, but you're just being honest about who and what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's how you grow, you know, yeah. you know, honest, honest self-reflection. Am, am, am I, am I uh, beating up America when I, when, when I talk about this, not this book, this is the next book coming up. When I talk about how black soldiers are treated. Uh, on the front lines in World War One, and I juxtapose that with how German Americans are treated in World War One, and, and showing the dehumanization. Do I hate America if I if I talk about that the Civil War um, was the result of secession, and secession was the result of slavery? Do I hate America? That's what happened. Mm -hmm. and, and we've got to have that kind of maturity to own what happened. And if I only know. If I only know history from a certain perspective, if I only understood uh, this text from a certain perspective and I, and I never encountered how others might experience the same document, then what purpose am I serving? Right, right. Yeah. I'm reminded of a James Baldwin quote, um, not everything that is faced can be overcome. Uh, but nothing can be overcome until it is faced. And I think you're, you're pointing us to um, a practice, a way of being um, that is confrontational in the best sense um, and not conflict avoidant and not um, in denial. I think sometimes for for obvious reasons, um, we are the United States of denial. <laughs> um, and I think that denial is is rooted in this desire from the powers to maintain a status quo. And though we can, you know, we can speak of the the strides made by those attempting to embrace a greater radicalism um, than the artisans of the Declaration, we remain kind of trapped in this history. Again, if I could use some a Baldwinism, uh, trapped in a history that we do not understand, um, and we remain trapped. We our misunderstanding or ignorance is to our own peril, and especially to the most vulnerable, and. I guess landing the plane, um, you talk about, you don't use this language, but you basically spell out the crisis of ne neoliberalism. Um, <laughs> and you, and you, and you, and you talk about how with coronavirus, um, 
emerging and the devastating, disruptive impact it's had, whether or not it's even possible for, you use the word recalibration in this moment. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that and I want to connect it to one other thing and just hear you riff, um, the uprisings. I mean, we're seeing uh, uh, an ur urban rebellions, uprisings, the like of likes of which we haven't seen since the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. And these uprisings are incredibly multiracial. There are critiques and concerns that need to be hashed out within all of that reality. But what do you see um, this, this radicalism possible uh, with the collision of neoliberalism, uh, the ongoing crisis of uh, racism, and this pandemic all just hitting at the head? Uh, wow. I, I, I would say, here's my cautionary note to neoliberalism right here. I, I think it's in that chapter that, that, that we're talking about, is that what you are seeing with the uprisings is the increasing rise, and I talk about in that chapter, of what I call the Bob Dylan demographic. Yes, I'm glad you went there. <laughs> uh, and Bob Dylan wrote the lyric, when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. So, so, so the Bob Dylan demographic is the most diverse demographic in the Amer in, in, that America has to offer. It, 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 it's, it's not bound by gender, race, religious affiliation, lack thereof. There's a growing number of people who are becoming apathetic and nihilistic. And when people don't care, when, when people say this, this, American project and the and the tragic death of George Floyd perked when people who were already on the edge about police brutality. But it also perked a number of people who were vehemently concerned about climate change. Then it perked some folk who who said since the recession of 2008, I can't get ahead. This American dream that I'm living is not my father's or grandfather's American dream. Then it some folk who say, I did all this stuff, I got student debt up, you know, to my eyelids, and I can't get ahead. Mm -hmm. So all this sort of was a confluence. And, yes. and y y you only have so much tear gas. You, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you only have so much tepid legislation you can throw at a problem. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, this project started by the founders, began on an idea. Now, it, it assumes that there would be a requisite number of people actively engaged. But as the Bob Dylan demographic increases, that will not be the case. And that mm -hmm. will be America's peril. Because great nations, if you, you, know, if you look at great, I mean great superpowers is what I meant to say. If you look at superpowers, empires, over, over time, no, there wasn't like there was the Roman Empire and then the British came in and defeated them. No, empires always implode from within. They right. implode because of arrogance and hubris and insularity. And, 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 and America's on that brink. On that brink. You, you, you know, I, I, again, we're, we're having a king fest here, so <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just remind you of the sermon the king was going to preach on that Sunday prior mm -hmm. to his assassination, which right. was entitled Why America May Go to Hell. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that don't make the King Holiday highlights. Right, right. <laughs> but to but it but if, but but what we're seeing is not just protests. You said uprisings, but what we're seeing corresponding with those uprisings is an increase in the Bob Dylan demographic and and, and that is ultimately mm-hmm. to America's peril. If it if it doesn't have a recalibration Agreed. Agreed. I think that's a great place to uh, land our conversation. It's been incredible to dialogue with you. Uh, looking forward to hearing much more um, that comes from this um, this book you've gifted us in this pivotal moment. And I think it'll be a great conversation partner as um, we who believe in freedom um, continue to do the work necessary to see not only a recalibration, but as Martin said, the whole structure must be born again, um, that the problems of America weren't just shallow, but there was a terminal um, condition that must be dealt with or peril collapse um, was inevitable, is inevitable. Thank you so much for the dialogue. My pleasure. I want to thank today's guest host, the Reverend Terrence Hawkins. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.